Well, today it is our privilege to hear from Pastor Soon Pak. Soon has been on our pastoral team for seven years. He has the gift of faith and has stretched and blessed uh, me and our entire church. He's a trusted advisor, a gifted pastor, and a good friend. As you may know, Soon has accepted a senior position at a church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and will be leaving our staff, leaving our church at the end of the month in less than two weeks' time. And so today we get to hear from Soon one last time as one of our pastors. Now I know we have first-time guests and visitors here today, in which case this will also be your first time to hear Soon Pak as one of our pastors. But whether you're new or have been around for a while, would you please welcome uh, Soon this morning for his final message. Thank you very much. Uh, glad to be here with you all this Sunday morning, this Lord's Day, for us to rest and to worship. And I am grateful to stand on the stage one last time to bring God's word for us. And I can feel the weight of this moment uh, in an emotional way as well as a spiritual way. Dr. Bart Hess, our uh, pioneering and founding pastor uh, in 1956 who planted Ward Church once said that Ward Church is the lengthened shadow of a great many men and women. And I feel that, especially standing here. Uh, my heart is swollen with gratitude of the countless men and women who labored and sacrificed for this church to exist as a light in our community, as well as each and every one of you who has called me your pastor for the past seven years. Extremely grateful to stand here. And I think the weightiness of this moment is not just uh, in the timing of this moment as, as I'm about to be sent out as Pastor Scott shared, uh, but kind of the weightiness of what the beauty of the church is and what the church can be, especially in our time, that what happens when brothers and sisters gather in the name of the Lord for the mission God has for them in our community and the world itself, sustained by grace alone, uh, that there's weightiness of what the church can do when brothers and sisters gather in that way. And what unifies and powers and sustains that kind uh, of church is penned by the words that were just read a little bit earlier and penned by Apostle John in his letter. And that power is love. Simple enough, but powerful enough to change the world if people, if you and I, are ruthlessly committed to that love. See, love is desperately pursued by the world, misunderstood by the world, fantasized by the world, and ultimately abused by the world. And it's not an accusation against the people out there, uh, but rather a call to self-reflection that John is asking of his church, a self-reflection of our very hearts. See, John was challenging the early church in this ethic of Love. See, in our world, uh, our loves can lead us astray. When we let the world affect us, it can, our loves can lead us astray. It's not our efforts, our longings, our pursuits, our desires aren't strong enough, but rather they get misplaced by the distractions of this world. We start looking at the reflection of what it is rather than the real thing. 
author and theologian, famous author and theologian, C.S. Lewis talks about it, uh, that we're far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. And it's in the context of a more famous quote, and it goes this. He says that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but rather too weak. So we are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine uh, what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. So today, I want to challenge us as a final word to fall in love, not just with the concept of love, but the person the person who offers us infinite joy, infinite peace, and ultimately infinite love in Jesus Christ. And as we explore this love uh, in Jesus, we're going to look at the foundation of love, the definition of love, and finally the ethic of love, the ought to, how ought we should live our lives, the ethic of love, foundation, definition, and ethic. So verse 7 and 8, first the foundation of of love. Verse 7 and 8 says this once again, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Throughout the Gospel of John and through his letters, the Apostle John repeatedly urges the followers of Jesus around the ethic of love. But even before unpacking the implications of that, He lays out a foundation of what love truly is, that the author and the means of love we experience is God himself, that God himself is the author and the means in which we experience love. Now, as a fun exercise, I want all of you guys to think back in your life and think about the very first time that you fell in love. Now, if it's not the person next to you, just pretend they are. We don't want to cause any drama on this holiday day. But think about that first time you experienced love. Do you remember how you felt? Do you remember the emotions that was riling up? Do you remember what it felt like uh, to hold that person's hand or look in their eye? I want you to think about that moment. Now imagine trying to describe what that feeling is. What is that feeling of love that you had? You know, most of us, when we think about it, we use analogies or illustrations, right? How many of you have heard it? Well, love is, you know when you know it. Or uh, it's sort of like butterflies in your stomach. Have you guys heard that before? Butterflies in your stomach. See, we think, we tend to think that love is birthed from us. Somehow we start feeling it and it becomes expressed in us. As much as we think love comes from the pit of our stomach, the love of God that God is speaking about through John uh, does not originate within us, but actually outside of us. And what John is saying is that when we experience love, it's actually a holy encounter with the divine. That love is from God and God is love. The foundation how you experience true and genuine love in our world is not within yourself, nor in the experience with another person, but the only invasion of the divine into your life. But let's be clear, the opposite is not true. And it's important to make this distinction because we tend to gravitate toward this, that love is God. Love is God. That is not the same 
as saying God is love, as John is saying. See, when love is God, the authority and ethic is shifted from God, the creator, to you, the author of this love. So as long as you love, as long as you experience love, as long as you can feel that love, uh, even if it's outside the bounds of Scripture, then you can justify whatever action, feelings, or motives as acceptable to God. As long as you feel love, then everything becomes okay. So your preference starts dictating the divine. When we hear this, we can easily point to those people outside the church, right? It's easily as a church thing, well, he's talking about those people out there when they just live their lives however they want against God's will. But that's not what John is addressing. He's actually looking at people inside the church. See, we have a tendency to look outside and say, well, that's right. If those people would just, you know, bring themselves back to God and the scriptures, then everything would be okay. But John's words is to the church. See, we in the church love justify what God is through what we love rather than letting what God dictate the love in our hearts. See, what we love begins to dictate the divine. Our preferences begin to dictate who we interact with and how we interact with them. The style of music that we prefer, the people we want to see in power or not in power, now become a quest for a godly seal of approval and what we already have defined as love for us, our loves dictate who God is and what he is not. And that's exactly what the New Testament authors were trying to address. So much of the controversies, debates, and issues of their time were not around God's heart for his people and the saving grace he's given them, but rather people driving their own loves as the normative for the church and the world. See, the apostle John is trying to bring people back to the foundation of love, that God is our treasure. That when we come into this place and gather as God's people, God is the treasure. God is love that we long for him and his glory. He is the author who defines love for us, not us defining it for him. So that leads to our second point, the definition of love. Definition or the meaning of love. Verse 9 and 10 says this. And this is how God showed showed his love among us. He sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. This is God Almighty declaring for us, this is what love is. God is the author and he's trying to define it for us to experience. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he sent his only son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the shift in defining what love is into the world. Throughout the ancient world, philosophers would debate on the concept of love. In the ancient world, some people saw love as this cosmic force in the world. That when they looked at the world, they see the four elements of earth, water, uh, air, and fire. I got them all. (laughs) And that love was this kind of concept that worked amongst those four things to create life and sustain life, this impersonal concept in the world. And when they thought of love in the ancient world, that's how they thought of it. Others saw love as this idealness in the world, this ideal beauty, ideal goodness, ideal truth, something that we would all kind of pursue after, but we could never, un- uh, never attain. This impersonal, distant, far away love that we should all venture after, but we could never attain in 
our world. Other philosophers talked about love in the sense of this bond you feel. A bond you feel between your brothers and sisters and friends. A bond you feel with your spouse, a man between a man and a woman, but this connection you felt. And philosophers would debate, what is this thing called love? And but then scripture comes, makes it very clear through Christ that love is not a concept, an actual idea, an ideal, but the person of Jesus. And Jesus, everything shifts in defining that love. And how John explains it is that this path that we were on was leading to death, but the Christ's atoning sacrifice has now shifted us to a life, a new life in God. See, uh, what Jesus does, he shifts the script of the narrative of all the history, one that was sentenced to death into one that has been given new life. Many of us probably have never heard of uh, Leonard Thompson. Leonard Thompson was 14 years old in 1922. He was the first recipient of insulin for type 1 diabetes. Leonard Thompson, 14 years old. Uh, His parents brought him to the hospital in 1922. Uh, 14 years at 65 pounds and in diabetic coma. See, prior to that moment in history, if you received the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, they, the community called it a death sentence. The people would rarely live longer than weeks or months, and in rare cases, a few years. But everyone knew what the story would go, that it was a death sentence. But in that moment when insulin was introduced, it says, and the accounts that almost immediately, within 24 hours, he got better. And from that point on, no longer was that a death sentence, but people live with uh, in full health now today. That when we get diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, we don't feel that pressure. In the same way, that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. You see, in those short two verses, the Apostle John lays out what was once a death sentence for all of humanity changed through one person. God sent Jesus into the world so that now we may live through him. And what he did to secure that was an atoning sacrifice. Theologically, they call it the doctrine of propitiation, the atoning sacrifice. And what Jesus did is that he took all the sins that were on us, the sins that would lead us to that death sentence, the sins that marked us for death for all of eternity. And what Jesus has done, he's come into the cross, has taken that upon himself. And in return, he offers us new life. He thwarts away the death sentence on us all and gives us new life through his work on the cross. That's how God defines love This is love, not that we have loved, but God has loved us first and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The gospel is this, that God in his infinite mercy would allow his son to bear the punishment deserved to us and gives us new life. That's how he defines love. And it's so countercultural to the world around us. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, leading scholar in the Old Testament, describes the Jewish faith as this. And he says this, what changes the world is not what God does for us, but what we do for God. It's not what God does for us, but what we do for God. This is how the world defines 
love? What can we muster up? What, we, what can we present? What can we bring to the table? It's not what God does for us, it's what we do for God. I can tell you the most vulnerable place for any person in this world to be is to put themselves out there in front of another person. To expose their heart and say, this is me. I love you, do you love me? It starts when we're young, elementary, middle school, when you write that little note that says, do you like me, yes or no? And it goes all the way to adulthood. And even now, we feel it when we put ourselves vulnerable, even in a friendship relationship, in a romantic relationship where one person goes up first and says, this is me. This is how I feel about you. How do you feel about me? It's a very vulnerable place to be. But think about, think about this, the, the God of the universe the God who has created all things before we could even act, before we can even think about loving God, he says he loved us first. He put himself out there. God himself stood forward and said, this is my son and I love you and I'm gonna show how much I love you by sending my son to die for you so that you can be reconciled to me. Before you've done anything, my redeemed people, my sheep, my loved ones, I have loved you first. So with all due respect to Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, what greater promise do we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ that God himself has declared to us before we did anything that he loved us. The meaning of love is not what we do for God, but what God has done for us. So where does that leave us? See, the story doesn't end with just that bold declaration that God loves us, but he calls us to respond, calls us to live this out in the ethic of love. Verse 11 and 12, the ethic of love. Dear friends, once again, since God so loved us, we also ought to, the ethic, how then shall we live our lives, the ought to of our lives, ought to love one another. See, no one has ever seen God but if we love one another, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. When we think about ethics again, it's about how then we should live in the light of the truth that John is giving us as his holy word, and he repeats himself, love one another. And he goes further saying that when we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. Another translation is perfected in us. And what that means is this, the implications of what John is saying is this, is that if we receive the grace, the love of God in this vertical dimension with God, and he finds us acceptable, that if we ignore this social dimension, the love of neighbor, that we have an incomplete or imperfect love that we experience. That there's a fullness of God's love that cannot be completed without the social dimension that's carried out. That even further, there's a missiological dimension, missiological opportunity that we miss out, a witness to the world out there. That when we don't love each other, we actually miss an opportunity to be a witness of Christ, a witness of God, that when we don't love each other, we miss an opportunity to share the goodness of God, the complete love of God to the world around us. And the big ethical question for us today, and we need to challenge ourselves, church, is how are we doing in loving each other? Not just with cordialities, not with niceties, not with pacification, 
with true sacrificial, laying your life down for your brothers and sisters, the way God defined love just in that previous verse, uh, hinder love for one another. How are we doing? And I wonder, do people outside of this church say, you know, those people at Ward, they're great people. I wonder if people say stuff like this. The people at Ward, I don't really agree what they say about God. I don't really agree with what they talk about Jesus. I don't really believe in all that stuff. But the way they love each other in the midst of this difficult season, the way they come together when things are so divided, the way they love each other, it makes me curious about who God is. Is that the narrative out there of the people in here, I wonder? One commentator wrote concerning this passage, he says, when God's unimaginable, limitless love comes alive in us, we become the real presence of God in the world. When God's unimaginable, limitless love comes alive in us, we become the real presence of God in the world. Isn't that beautiful? But I think we can all agree the church has fallen short of the ethical call of love. See, sometimes we take this unconditional, sacrificial love of God and we turn it to a conditional, self-preserving kind of love. So we take this limitless, unconditional, sacrificial love of God, and when we interpret it as a people of God, we make it conditional and we make it self-preserving. And that's the kind of love we present to each other in this space. If you just agree with the way I think, then I will extend Christian love to you. If you just vote the way I want you to vote, then I'll extend Christian love to you. If you would just worship the way I think we should worship, then I'll extend Christian love to you. And we miss out on the true, complete fullness of God's love. See, if we decide to live out the call of love the way the gospel calls us to, the world will take notice. When we worship alongside brothers and sisters that we don't necessarily agree with on the non-essentials, the world will take notice. When we sing songs we don't necessarily like, when we hear sermons that we don't get a lot out of, not including today, uh, that we glorify God and the fullness of God's love is made complete in us. When we worship where all things aren't the way we want it to, but in a way that's sacrificial in the way the Savior has led us to. When we step into that kind of love that's brave and audacious, sacrificing in a way that makes us feel uncomfortable because it's not the way we want to do it, we step into the complete fullness of God's love, that God's love is made complete in us as the brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That's the call of the church. That's what makes us different than the rest of the world. It's not about what I can do, but what love looks like in a sacrificial way. I want to leave with a final thought on this text. I've been diving deeper into the wisdom literature uh, in the Old Testament and the New, and when it talks about two paths of life, you hear it over and over again, two paths of life, between two brothers or two family members, uh, but particularly in the way of the, the righteous, the way of the wise, versus the way of the wicked, the way of the fool. And I find over and over again, not just in scripture, but in life, rarely does someone think that they're the fool. Even when they're making decisions, they think they're being the way of the righteous and the way of the wise. Little do they know they've making taking wrong steps. One of uh, my seminary professors, Dr. Bruce Walkie, says it this way in a real simple, clear way to understand. He says this, the righteous are willing 
this is the important part, willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community or the body or the fellowship. But the wicked are willing to, the wicked are willing to disadvantage the body, the community, to advantage themselves. The way of the wise versus the way of the wicked. I would say the only force in all of eternity and history that can drive someone into this kind of life where you're willing to sacrifice for the sake of others is love. A willingness to disadvantage oneself for the sake of others, that is love. So I would challenge you, church, that when you find yourself disadvantaged, having to sacrifice, feeling frustrated, things don't go the way you want in this body, that you're in a good place, that you're in a place of love where you're laying down your life, laying down your wants for the sake of glory of God, and you're standing in the same place that your Savior once stood, a place of sacrifice. And in that moment, God's love is made complete in us to the glory of God, to the glory of his Son, and to the glory of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Just a few more words as I leave. Uh, I just wanted to extend once again my deep gratitude for this church. Deep gratitude for this church and the ways that you have loved me, you have loved my family, and you have loved uh, even when I'm weak uh, and even when I falter. I shared this story earlier about I remember in that first interview uh, we were overseas and I was on the phone or on the video call with uh, Scott McKee and our former executive director, Barry McKenna, if you know him. And Barry, uh, uh, man, to this day, very honest, but such a godly man said, soon, I don't think you're as qualified as some of the other candidates, but I kind of like you. And <laughs> I am deeply appreciative that he in that moment uh, took a risk on me uh, because through that, I feel like I've grown so much in the seven years as a pastor, as a leader, uh, as a father, as a husband, and grown in so many ways uh, only because of what you have given to me, your prayers, your support. And I want to leave with you this, that we have uh, one of the best churches uh, in this area. And this is not as a competitive speak of the other churches, but when I think of our senior pastor, when I think of our staff, our elders, our deacons, our volunteers, God is doing something special here and it's painful to say goodbye, uh, to be sent out. But Lord has great things for us if we would just love one another in the spirit of Jesus. That's the call on us as the church. I'm thankful that I got to be a part of it for seven years. I know that I'm only sent out because of your love and support. I'm deeply thankful. Thank you. Aaron, let's get you up here as well. Well, I uh, uh, go ahead and have a seat just for a minute. I'm gonna, I want to talk a little bit about uh, sooner. We're going to pray for him. Uh, I remember that Skype phone call eight years ago uh, with you, you, you and Aaron living in China with two children. And little did I know at that time how important you would become to me and to our church. And the last seven years, you've doubled the number of your kids here in our midst. 
and uh, it's been a real privilege. Um, Aaron, too, I don't get to spend as much time with you as I do with, I, I, I spend more time with Sue than I do with my wife. I, we spend so much time <laughs> to, together, um, but you also have a strong missionary heart. It brought you to China. It led you to teach English as a second language. It has brought you lots of gospel opportunities and relationships. You are both, both so deeply loved and respected. So let's take a moment now as a church to, to pray for Soon and Aaron and for their family. Oh God, we thank you for the ministry of Soon and Aaron in our church and in our region. You have taught us through them to love you more and to love each other better. It's been seven years of privilege to serve you together, God, and to see, um, to see these kids, Levi, Titus, Abigail, Noah, to see them in our hallways and mentored and discipled by leaders in our church. Uh, but now, God, it seems that you have uh, seen fit to call them to a new place and to a new ministry. And so we pray today abundant blessing upon Stonebridge Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. May this church also come to love you and love each other all the more. We pray for them as they prepare to receive their new pastor and this dear family. We pray also for ourselves, for our sense of loss is great. We are grieving. We wonder how the gap can be filled in our hearts and in practice. And yet, God, we take heart in knowing that there is but one church of Jesus Christ, and we will forever ever be brothers and sisters and co-laborers for one Lord in one cause, in one global church. We pray blessing and honor. We pray that just as you sent your son and your son has sent your church, we now send soon and Aaron and the kids, we send them to a new call and pray that you would be glorified in them and through them and that you would be glorified in and through us. We pray this together as your church in the strong name of Jesus Christ who makes us one. And the whole church agreed and said, Amen. And amen. Pastor, would you please uh, pronounce the benediction? Yeah, if you would stand, please. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you may abound in hope. Go in peace. Amen.